friends, and welcome back to the third and final episode of the Three Musketeers podcast. Myself, Tom, and Brandon are excited to dive into the culmination of Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. Last week, we talked about the Trell Famidorian commentary on war, the story of Don Quixote, as well as the attitudes of English POWs. But today, we'll be looking at the significance of Billy Pilgrim's name and talk about another story by Vonnegut. On top of that, we have the pleasure of interviewing the one and only Tom Gleason's grandparents, two people who have lived through more conflict than we have ever known. Now we invite you to sit back and enjoy the final podcast from the very best group out there. Pilgrim is defined as a person regarded as journeying through life. And we think it's very significant that the main character in this novel is named Billy Pilgrim. Because honestly, throughout the start of the book, I was kind of glancing past it. Okay, it's just a sign or a, a nonfiction or a fiction character's name. And I didn't really think of the deeper meaning it had. But as you read through the book, you kind of see how it represents him and Vonnegut as a whole. Yeah, I agree with you, and I know uh, we were coming up with different ways to look at this when we were talking about this beforehand, and I think we came up with two contrasting ideas as to what that could mean, uh, like he's an outsider or he's a traveler. And uh, well, Yeah, I like how you put how they're contrasting more than actually similar because we look at it through, okay, he's an outsider in a lot of this book, but he's also somewhere who's someone who's looking – for somewhere to belong. So it's like, he's not like constantly or, or purposely staying outside of things and not trying to be involved and actually assimilate with anyone, but he's more of just innately and, and kind of people treat him that way. But he's also looking for something better for himself. I kind of saw more of his, more of an outsider in this book rather than a, a traveler. Um, like one of the reasons why is that he never really had any like friends uh, in the book, they stated, or Vonnegut writes, he had never had an old gang, old sweethearts or pals, but he missed one anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was like, that was that, that part after he was hearing that. That, that was when he actually pulled out the, the ring or, or the necklace for his wife, right? Yeah. It was that, after he heard that song, he was like tearing up because he was actually so depressed almost, but he still, he like longed to want, want somebody who, who accepted him. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting way for Vonnegut to say that too, like mm-hmm. showing using a song about friendship and this and that, and then him saying that Billy never really had it. But that's interesting too because he was in that war camp with those guys for a couple, you know, some time, and yeah. you would think that he would establish some sort of camaraderie with them. Mm-hmm. That just cements what we were saying a couple of times in the last uh, couple of podcasts about the American soldiers and how they had that lack of camaraderie. Yeah, but even that, I feel like most people, even now, it's almost not a misconception to say that someone you're going through hard times with, like Billy was with all his people, that you would grow a bond. Like, it's weird 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a stereotype in any way because it's got it's true in any aspect of life really, and and like for Vonnegut to to still make him an outcast in such a difficult situation is saying a lot, and he purposely obviously made his name to reflect that. Yeah, throughout the book, it, like when he's in the war and everything, he seemed to like never belong uh, in a group mm-hmm. or with anyone. He was just like he was definitely the outsider with everyone else. Like, he was always spacing out and going into different, like, times. Like, when he was um, doing the optometry with uh, a patient, and all of a sudden he's back in a different time, he was never really there with anybody. Yeah, and why do you guys think that is? Do do you think it was maybe because he didn't, he lacked friends as a kid or something? Because you think, like, he was so despondent, like, throughout the whole book, especially in the war, when he just wanted to die, it seemed like. Is what what does that maybe have its roots in? Because we don't get that much on his childhood, but I think that is a possibility, sure. But you know, nowadays we can look at things with like maybe it was just a mental illness, even not like super severe, but just something that he could never really click with anybody. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I never thought of it actually like that because like at the time, people with mental illnesses were treated like shit. Like they they got nothing in life. They were constantly degraded and I guess they had no place to to really cement themselves as belonging so maybe that is maybe it was something actually like biologically that's my bad jump something yeah I think that's an interesting jumping off point to uh the second thing that we talked about the other the contrast that um we talked about earlier with him being a traveler like mm. maybe because he felt this certain outsider he needed to move like need to find some place for his own peace of mind and that's mm-hmm. when he created this trail famador storyline of his yeah and he's he's literally like a pilgrim to this new planet when he gets abducted like mm-hmm. that that is a direct relation to his name because he's that's like perfectly it's it's like when you think of a pilgrim you think of maybe in the whatever 17th century when people came over to or 18th century when people came over to america place that they'd never been before where new culture it was literally a new world at the time that's literally what billy's doing he's going to a brand new world as a pilgrim with like a totally new sense of well he's trying to find a sense of belonging i feel that he was trying to um find a sort of a sense of peace kind of with himself and everything he experienced with the war he's like super anti-war uh throughout the book and he, he when he's at Chalfamador, like he praises the peace there, mm-hmm. and he kind of like he's like urging for that. Yeah, even though it's not actually there, as we kind of went into in the last podcast, how it's actually like they do have wars, but they just decide to ignore mm-hmm. them. But I guess we mm-hmm. we already talked about that. So, yep. Another part, I mean, going back to him actually being an outsider and something that casts him into this this like journey for meaning was like his wife he didn't love her at all like he the way he described her throughout the book was like was brutal but like in words when he talked to her he was like super loving actually he's like yeah i love you i I wouldn't want to be with anyone else and it seems like to her that she reciprocated that and actually felt it even though it it, through vonnegut's eyes it was like completely empty yeah, I found it interesting though that uh, when his uh, wife had passed away, 
um, from like the carbon monoxide thing. Mm-hmm. He had like no emotions at all about her. Yeah. yeah. Like he 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 did seem to actually he acted norm what I guess we would see as normal around her, and even when she left and died, like trying to see him, making sure he was all right, he still was just despondent. Maybe that was because of his injury, because that had to have a pretty big impact. But still, he just he just didn't care because no, he thought maybe nobody cared about him really. Yeah, I think the whole thing, the reason they got married was just for like a financial standpoint almost mm-hmm. one could argue and but, so in that way he he got married but he was still an outsider like you guys were saying mm-hmm. you can never get that connection maybe it's a ptsd maybe it's a mental illness maybe it's a childhood thing but he just never could you can put words on something but it doesn't mean it's true yeah he, he married her to just get a, a foothold in like the optometry business in ilium because her dad was such like a, a powerhouse in that in that field. And yet he was still just like maybe if he didn't make such isolating choices. But I think I going back, like back to the war, he was never accepted. So I feel like he he almost felt like he didn't belong. So he didn't try to try to like belong because he knew that no one would ever really accept him. Yeah. Even when he dressed up like differently in the war mm-hmm. he was wearing all that weird stuff and what we would consider weird and different than everybody else mm-hmm. and that was just literally like a physical showing of it yeah so, so when he was like traveling through his mind and trying to find some some peace of mind really and i mean one of the things he he sought was those books like he was he would love these very cheesy sci-fi books as we talked about prior, but even like when he went in that store, that pornography store, he latched on to the one thing that nobody really cared about or wanted him to even like. He just, he just, he kind of felt a sense of belonging in these, in these books and in Tralfamador and that whole idea he had. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Do you think that's that's why he brought that author in? Because he was kind of a, a strange character, I thought. He was brought in, but what did he contribute? Like, he was just a crazy dude selling newspapers, talking to this young chick, and, like, not much else. He didn't, he didn't really have any deep conversations with him. He just spewed out some random stuff. And I thought Billy wanted him to be a friend, but Billy didn't make any attempt, it seemed like, to actually make him a friend. I would disagree with that, actually. I think um, that he did kind of feel like when he first approached him, he was so excited to get in and talk to him and stuff. And and then he finally invites him to his house. I think he was starting to get a connection there over the science fiction, like you were saying. His one outlet in life Mm -hmm. was through this guy's books, and now he finally gets to meet him and maybe make that connection. That emotion. Yeah, for me, I kind of had no clue what, uh, what the guy's purpose was in the book. Mm-hmm. I was just amazed how um, when he was with the young girl, he was kind of just like playing with their um, yeah. like intelligence. He was just like uh-huh. playing off her gullibleness. Uh-huh. And and he like, I think he believed in, in himself saying that. Like he was like almost the Billy. He was Billy with confidence because Billy's got those ideas, but he never yeah. has the courage to share things. This guy mm-hmm. just 
just doesn't he he was throwing out ideas of god of the afterlife and this girl was soaking it all up it was like he was just a mirror image of him but maybe it's because billy consumed so much of his his content that he almost just felt like he meant he eventually morphed into the dude yeah maybe that scene with the young girl like you're saying brandon it's like they were trying to show him as such an outsider that he doesn't even care that he's messing with the girl he, he has fun with it and you know i know like people mess with each other sometimes and then they say no i'm just kidding but this guy was like full on yeah he wasn't messing around he was actually like, tricking the swim yeah he knew what he was doing mm -hmm. what was uh so like billy pilgrim's name it's obviously very significant but what is his pilgrimage like what is he trying to reach i know we talked about the happiness but is the pilgrimage his ideas of trail famador is that what he's he's like aspiring to accomplish someone who can share that their their insight with the world yeah I, I think he was trying to find that that sense of longing like we said and that happiness but they were also kind of all under this umbrella of the trail famador's ideas mm -hmm. and the way what they told him he felt something there he felt like he could go and look at his happiest moments and just stay there forever and he could finally feel this like at peace and stop skipping through time and all that yeah and actually this one quote can kind of close that out perfectly because he found his peace and here's the quote it says mm -hmm. trump Midorians would advise billy to concentrate on the happy moments of his life and to ignore the unhappy ones to stare only at pretty things as eternity failed to go by if this sort of selectivity had been possible for billy he might have chosen as his happiest moment his sun-drenched snooze in the back of the way. Speaking of a wonderful world and nature, that song is great, by the way. It's a classic. But that leads us into our next discussion about Vonnegut's nod to nature in his own short stories, along with this theme of freedom in Deer in the Works. Yeah, and, and for those of you, I imagine most of you, um, who haven't read, or read this uh, piece, it's basically a short story that, is about a man who gave up his freelancer job. His name's David. And he was trying to pursue a more stable career because his family was getting big. He just had two sets of twins unexpectedly, obviously. And so he just all of a sudden had four kids and he needed to provide for his family in the long term. So he was kind of giving up or he was trying to argue with himself or convince himself that giving up his his liberty and in, in being his own boss was worth the stress that he would find in his new job. But um, so he basically he gave up his old job and he w went to his new job. And this story kind of entails the very start of his new job and what kind of stresses it br brought on to him and how he needed to just let go eventually. I think we should begin by uh, taking our first impressions of the thing. Um, I'll start and I'll say I think this was one of these stories that you're reading like an English class and you really have 
basically no idea what to accomplish here. And then the teacher's like giving you all these deep meanings that are in it. Yeah, this is like a lottery type story because we, I felt it was random and abrupt in the ending. Maybe it was because I was expecting a longer kind of well thought out, which it was likely, but I was just kind of not impressed, but I'm sure there is some some deep meaning to be found in it. Yeah, I too wasn't uh, too impressed with the ending, but I feel like it actually really had like a deeper meaning like throughout the whole book. So what did, what did you guys think the meaning of, uh, was the meaning of this work by Vonnegut? Well, first I feel like I forgot to mention the whole ending, which we're talking about. Well, basically this dude gets a factory job and he's a, he's a media person. And his, jo- his, his first day on the job, his boss sends him out to photograph this deer that got stuck in the industrial yard. And is like he, he's like going to take pictures of him and, and get a story on it as if it's like the most intriguing thing ever. As if it's like cool to report on a deer getting stuck in a place of civilization. And um, basically, David struggles to find it. He's like lost. He's stressing out. He's like, how am I going to get here? I'm going to lose my job first day. He's completely like struggling, but then he eventually finds it. And when he finds it, his job comes around. He's like, oh yeah, good job, David. You found it. Good stuff. You found it before this guy did, even though it took him like an hour longer than it should have. And he goes, and he, he sees the deer and instead of actually having a story on it and giving this boss what he wants, he literally just lets it go into the woods and chases it off with, like he follows it. So that's how it ended. But I guess I'll ask you guys what Brandon just said. What What do you guys think is the meaning of this ending? Well, I think it's something that we, uh, as you mentioned earlier with him going into this, giving up his freedom. Like um, he worked, he owned, like basically owned his own newspaper company. And then he was leaving that job to come work for these guys. So I think it was kind of symbolic of that deer that um, the guy fight the main character's name is David and him and the deer are very similar because they're trapped in this large corporation. They kind of got sucked into the situation that they didn't want to be, but mm-hmm. they were forced into it. And now they're both trying to leave, trying to get out of the stress of the modern workplace and just run free, have freedom of their own control and that. Yeah. Yeah. For the deer, it was like going from, the wild wilderness like great like his life was fine or whatever to being stuck in not it doesn't even matter what place it would be but he's stuck and just like david david enjoyed his his life as a reporter on his own little magazine or weekly whatever they called it but he eventually found himself stuck in a job that he thought he would like maybe but they set out his life plan for him almost like right when you get in like here's what is gonna in 10 years, you're going to progress to this. In 20 years, you're going to retire and you're going to have this much. Like he felt like there was, he was, he, the walls were closing and he couldn't get out. Yeah, it was definitely because of the restrictions like the corporation had. He had all this stress because of everything he had to deal with and all the rules. I mean, this is, this kind of goes back to the age old question that would you rather have a job that you love, but you don't make a lot of money for, or get a, a bunch of money and hate your job? And I kind of want to ask you guys that. What do you? What would you guys choose? Honestly, I I'd say chase your passion. You know, you only get one life. You might as well live something you like. 
Yeah. As, as a future journalist yourself, what's the, uh, what's your outlook on his situation here? What would you have done? Yeah. I'd say there's no way I'd leave that um, newspaper. Even if, I know, like he said, it's risky because it could go out of business you know, any, any time in the next 10 years. But I mean, you gotta just stick with it and try and keep fighting and keep that alive because it's something you love. You can't give up on it. Yeah. I, I agree with uh, Gleason. Um, with chasing your passion. I know there's a saying um, that goes like, if you find it, uh, something you truly love, you'll never work a day in your life. Oh gosh. So that like corny, finding something, corny saying. <laughs> finding something you love, like it'll just make you happy and like less stressful. Yeah, well, I, I kind of take the opposite, more realistic, I think, view on this. Sure, yeah, you find something you love, you never work a day in life, but everything's work. And honestly, if you got a job that that could feed your family and provide like like provide for you why not sacrifice your happiness for a little while to help your family be comfortable or to set up your future because maybe you can quit in in 10 years after you make some good money maybe go back to an old uh your old job but i guess that's more of a loophole that's not really one of the questions but it kind of just brings back the whole theme of like he, Vonnegut here is almost pointing out that corporate or how bad the corporate world is. And why do you think he's doing that? Well, if we know anything from Slaughterhouse Five, he likes to comment on society. So mm-hmm. he's probably, you know, bringing out his own viewpoints and trying to point mm-hmm. something out that the public can kind of um, interpret in their own way, like we just did when we all just decided on what we would do. So it makes you think about it, you know, mm-hmm. they just let it flow by and let their world keep progressing in this um, industrial way. I see. Uh, I see. I know a lot of people back then from what we've learned in history who were anti-government were also. I mean, I know Vonnegut's not anti-government, but being more of a like a progressive anti-war, which, as we talked about earlier, um, or as we will talk about later is a less kind of the road less traveled in that in the time period he lived in or rode in like the 60s i feel the same thing about anti-big business because this was kind of the time where they had a big hold on politics and they still do obviously but he was also trying to make a commentary on that like painting this industrial world as brutal ruthless like you're chasing after things you'll never achieve and kind of just contrasting that to being free and, and doing what you like. And as a writer, doing what you like would be perfect for being writing a weekly. Like that would be his kind of ideal job almost. Uh, to change gears a little bit, um, after reading the short story by Vonnegut, um, I noticed a similarity between uh, Billy and Slaughterhouse-Five and David in this uh, short story. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of saw both of them to be like an outsider in a way. Um, so do you guys feel the same way about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know we talked about that in the last section, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, they're, they're both kind of outsiders, like you said, and they're kind of looking for a way to feel this freedom and peace. Like, like Billy was in the trying to find peace with the trail mm-hmm. from Salvadorians and then David trying to find peace with the comfortable job and, they support his family. Yeah, and I think in the industrial yard, when he was, 
he was running around asking people where to go when he's trying to find this deer for everyone who hasn't read it. And so he's running around asking all these people and they all know they've, they're regulars here. They just walk around with blank faces. They were actually surprised to see someone so happy running around and like ecstatic for trying to get something done. Cause it was that, it was that monotonous, the whole job. But yeah, I think all these people knew everything about this place, knew their way around and Billy didn't. And in a way he was his, he was searching for acceptance by succeeding in his first news story about this deer that would soon be used if they caught this deer they were going to actually kill it and eat it at this luncheon later, this corporate luncheon. Hmm. So it was kind of a lot of pressure on him. And he wanted to, he wanted to prove everyone right and be like, you made the right hire. And he was trying to find acceptance, but in the end he couldn't. And he just, he freed himself from it immediately. Like a day after taking the job. What we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Duck and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of Before we get into the interview, we want to let you know that due to a lack of tech savviness on both sides, the audio is sometimes hard to interpret. Because of this, we'll do a brief analysis of the conversation afterwards. Here it is. <laughs> We have my grandparents here. They're gonna answer some questions about the Cold War and uh, how war or how sentiments were going down in the '60s and '70s and times like that. All right. So our first question for you, Grandma and Grandpa, is: What was the general public's attitude like during the '60s and during the early stages of the Cold War towards war? Did people like war? Or were they afraid of it? And I know that at the time they had a lot of sirens going off for bombs in the United States. Did you have any experiences with that? So I've actually got a question about that. Uh, how did, I know you guys must've been very afraid because those times seemed very uncertain. And how did the press kind of cover that? Did you guys get a lot of insight on what was going on or? Yeah, they knew all about what was going on as much as they could. There's a lot of stuff that was hidden until later. Mm-hmm. Really? But the, but the press were 
part. They were for the war? They supported it? It, it wasn't a war. It was whether the, there was going to be a missile strike. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The missile crisis and all that? So what they were thinking of that they could have the missiles could come all the way here to Chicago. So in this in this time, did they try to? I mean, I'm sure people were afraid of of the Soviet Union and things like that. And how were they portrayed in whether it be the news or just media, like movies and things like that? How was the enemy kind of painted out for the American citizen to view? Well, the U.S. was okay, but every, all the Russians, they were always about the Russians was against them. Mm-hmm. They didn't want anything done with them. Mm-hmm. They were against them all the time. They had they wanted to get all the spies and everything that they could get. Uh, the Rosenbergs. Rosenbergs. They got picked up for spies giving tra- uh, U.S. secrets to the Russians. We just had one last question for you guys. During like the 50s or, or 60s, or like seventies, any time like that. Did you guys ever go see like movies that were like really anti-war? Oh yeah, there were. Well, that was a big thing. They had um, the U.S. had to have. They wanted everything for the U.S. So as you guys just heard, that was kind of a different take on war in general as to the approach of how Kurt Vonnegut kind of looks at it, because it seems as though uh, Tommy's grandparents were more of a pro-war majority back then, rather than what I've discovered was more of a minority hippie kind of anti-war group in the 60s. One thing I found interesting in what Tommy Grant's parents said was uh, about the young and old people and their views on the war. Uh, they mentioned how uh, the older people un- like understood more about it than the younger people did. So mm-hmm. like, what do you guys feel about that? Well, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued on what they meant about understood because I, I do remember when they said that and I was kind of confused. Like, what is there to understand? Is it the conflict? Because they said the young people didn't like it, but the older people... They didn't say the older people liked it, but they just said they understood it, which kind of innately inserts that, oh, they they were for it, too. So I I found that kind of kind of interesting on what they meant by that. Yeah, maybe it was like this complacency, like they weren't totally against the war, but they weren't totally for it either. They were just kind of like, well, we understand what the U.S. got into Vietnam for, I think is what we were talking about at the time. Mm-hmm. why they got into it, the older people understood that more than the younger people did. So they were kind of like, well, we're not going to protest against it, but we're not totally for it either. Yeah, it's almost like when, like at the time, they were young. They, mm-hmm. Like looking back at it as as older people with I think what they would, like what most people would describe as more life experience, they kind of have a different view on it. But Maybe they were raised by more um, pro-war, like anti-super progressive, because that's what—that's really what the anti-war sentiment all came from. And I guess where where Vonnegut was coming from with his book. So it was kind of just their whole take on America First. Then that we kind of got from that interview, though it was kind of hard to hear at times. Sometimes 
it seems as though they were more pro U.S. Yeah, I think my grandma was saying that, but what with how they went to the movies and there's so much about that. And then she also said she was scared at times. I think that might have like scared her into this like patriotism and mm-hmm. for America rather than like being under attack and by these other countries. Yeah, it's almost like it, it almost forced a sense of pride. And they said that they first started out by saying that they trusted the press by everything they said. Like, yeah, they said what they knew, but then they said that they hid stuff. So it was like mm-hmm. a little contradiction, but I mean, it was still more of a trust in the press than than what Vonnegut would, would probably express because of his viewpoints, obviously, on them hiding things and like hiding what, but. Yeah, I feel like back then you kind of had to trust the press. Um, there wasn't that much technology like there was back then as there is today. Mm-hmm. And like that was their only like source of information, basically. Well, that's it. Thank you for joining us on our journey through Slaughterhouse-Five. We appreciate you for giving up your time and listening to these riveting episodes. We want to give one more big thank you to Tommy's grandparents for sharing their valuable insight with us. So, with a solemn heart, we depart you forever. Hopefully you liked what we gave out, and uh, you have a nice rest of your life. You don't need to subscribe anymore because, well, it's over, and we hope you learned a lot. So, peace out. I just want to say something real quick. Oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> We've all been pilgrims in this journey. Stop, dude. And we're at the end now. Stop. Oh. Our last podcast. Oh, oh, God. It really has been a pleasure. You're going to make wow. me cry, man.